Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia. Hello, my pretties, and welcome to the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under all the beds, and continue if you dare. In the stunning finale of the Agoraphobia Phenomenon, our last two podcasters present stories to chill your soul. First, Benjamin Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia shares the surprising fate of Rhode Island's founding father, Roger Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, the apple tree that ate Roger Williams. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Jacobs. I host the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast. But today, I'm here to talk to you about Rhode Island, my adopted homeland. In Rhode Island, there is no more revered figure than Roger Williams. I use that absolute consciously, because while this state contains people from a plethora of homelands and a wide variety of creeds, and while the reputation of the Founding Fathers has become somewhat tarnished of late due to modern concerns about their slave ownership and ideas about race, Roger Williams' ideas remain relevant, and his character remains largely untarnished by time. Now, for those of you not up on their obscure New England historical figures, Roger Williams was a religious nonconformist who was exiled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1635. His crime was preaching that there was not enough separation between the government of the colony and the church of the colony, and that Native Americans were people too, and should be treated with dignity. Given that this was around 20 years before the Salem Witch Trials, 
and many, many years before we all started treating the Native Americans like people, you can judge for yourself the absurdity of his statement. Following his exile, Roger Williams had two aces up his sleeves as he walked off into the wilderness. First, while he had angered many in Massachusetts, obviously, he had also won many people over. Many of these men and women had promised to follow Williams at a later date, once he found a new home for them. The second advantage Williams had was that, well, he was like the only white man who had stood up in front of his peers and said that the Native Americans should be treated like people. In fact, he would go on to write the first ever dictionary of a Native American language, a book that is still an important source for linguistic scholars despite some errors. So when Roger Williams showed up on the shores of beautiful Narragansett Bay, he had friends who were already there, and per his word, he treated them fairly and with respect. The land that now makes up the state of Rhode Island is probably the only state or former colony whose land was purchased in a way that Native American legal traditions would have recognized as fair and binding. So take that, Massachusetts. Now, this segment isn't about the life of Roger Williams or the history of Rhode Island. For that, I heartily recommend that you check out Jamie Redfern's excellent History of the United States. Jamie does a superlative job of not completely ignoring Rhode Island like most scholars, and for that, his show gets my approval. For now, suffice it to say that as far as we know, Roger Williams lived an exemplary life of service and morality. He spent his life trying to organize Rhode Island Colony into something coherent, and always using persuasion and never forced to do so. Though Rhode Island remained a fractious and independent place, whenever Williams was around, he was usually able to mend fences and bring people together. Rhode Island remained on good terms with their Narragansett neighbors until a few years before his death, when a sneak attack on the tribe's women, children, and elderly was conducted by militia from Massachusetts and Connecticut without the permission or knowledge of Rhode Island Colony. Several Rhode Islanders were in fact killed in the defense of the Narragansett, or were hung after being captured by the foreign militias. Nonetheless, the Narragansett warriors, who returned to a village full of slain women and children, were not exactly in a discriminating mood, and began attacking white settlements near them, regardless of whether they were in Connecticut or Rhode Island or Massachusetts. Providence itself was burned to the ground in vengeance for this unprovoked attack, and relations between the tribe and Rhode Island colony and state never really recovered. Though his life's work of building good relations between the Native Americans and the colonists ultimately failed, and failed within his lifetime, William's ideas would have a life far beyond the man himself. By the time of his death a few years later, Roger Williams was advocating that a firm wall be erected between the secular affairs of government and religious matters. Given the corruption of worldly organizations, Williams turned his back on all forms of organized religion, and publicly stated that the worship of the Native Americans was no more or less worthy than that of a Christian. Despite this, Williams remained a deeply spiritual man, and would hold impromptu prayer meetings with whatever friends of his happened to be around, no matter their color or creed. Though the coming years would see Rhode Island become more and more a conventional colony, and then state, and though Roger Williams' ideas were initially somewhat forgotten, Rhode Island was the last state to ratify the Constitution, and to this day retains a strong independent streak, characteristic of a place founded by nonconformists. The spear-wielding figure on the state flag and on top of the state house building is known unofficially as the Independent Man, and harkens back to the ideals of independence and free thought that the state's founder espoused. As for the man himself, when he died, Williams was not at the top of his fame or reputation. 
Williams was buried in a simple grave on his own property, near what was soon to become the city of Providence's industrial heart. Within a generation, his house collapsed, and the location of his grave was lost. Reflecting the passing of Williams' memory from popular consciousness, even within his own state, as the colony became more and more conventional. But this was just the start of a much longer story. You see, because it was in the heart of the first city in the country to truly industrialize, Williams' property between North and South Main Streets did not lie undisturbed. Development intervened. It was found by accident in 1740, and was hastily covered over after a small boy was lowered into the grave to confirm that it did, in fact, contain human remains. At that time, just bones. As themes of religious toleration, racial unity, and personal liberty became more important in American society, Williams' memory was rehabilitated over the first century of the new country's existence. By 1860, at a time when the fabric of the United States was coming apart and people were looking for foundational figures on the right side of the slavery question, an effort started to create a real monument to honor Williams. Local industrialist and intellectual Zachariah Allen spearheaded an effort to move Williams' remains to a proper burial site and began digging holes around what had once been Williams' property. This effort was ended by the intervention of Williams' great-great-great-granddaughter, who considered this work a desecration. But before the work was stopped, Allen found what he considered to be the gravesite. The bones had by that point mostly rotted away, but there were some fragments, teeth and nails, and one very charismatic apple tree root. You see, in this particular hole, Mr. Allen found a root, located roughly where the coffin should have been, according to Mr. Allen. And this root had grown in a way that suggested to Mr. Allen that it grew along the top of Mr. Williams' body and presumably derived sustenance from the body's decomposition. This root was used by Allen as evidence of the site's being the actual burial site, and so he gathered such scattered remains as he found, placed them in an urn, and put them in the care of Betsy Williams, the aforementioned great, great, great-granddaughter. Williams deposited the remains in the family mausoleum. The route was kept by Mr. Allen, and it began a strange journey through the museums of Rhode Island. Some years later, Betsy left the family properties on nearby College Hill to the state, with the proviso that it become a park and that they erect a proper monument to Williams' memory. Over the years, Rhode Island has made many attempts to honor its favorite founder, with somewhat varying levels of success. Betsy Williams' property on College Hill was indeed turned into a park, Terrace Park, which was frequented rather often by Providence's native son, H.P. Lovecraft. But the statue of Williams was not built until funding was provided by the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s. The current 15-foot granite statue that stands today is as much a testament to the occasional shortcomings of the otherwise wonderful WPA as it is to Williams. Looking out over the city from the old family property on College Hill, the statue invites the viewer to contemplate what kind of mind would be required to make a statue built out of granite look like one made out of concrete. One also wonders whether the sculptor had ever actually seen a human person standing before. Williams stands there stiffly, his legs not quite in a comfortable position, one arm held out, palm down, at a 90-degree angle to his body. Modern observers on the internet have noted the statue's extremely unnatural posture would be perfect if Roger Williams were actually standing in front of a DJ booth, hand extended as he scratched some sick beats on his turntable. Whatever the case above ground, the statue also marks the final resting place of the human remains pulled from the grave by Zachariah Allen, which were eventually placed in a small mausoleum below the statue. As for the non-human remains, 
the route that ate Roger Williams has become a popular curio at the nearby John Brown Museum. People come from around the world to view the carnivorous tree, apparently much to the annoyance of the museum conservators. It is indeed an open question as to whether the root belongs at this museum at all, as the John Brown Museum is intended to tell the public the story of the Brown family, a group of notorious slave profiteers, and the elitist Anglo-Saxon university that they founded. Roger Williams, who opposed slavery at every turn and who lived before the university's foundation, is certainly not within the writ described, nor is a weird story about a carnivorous tree. Nonetheless, the root is there, nailed to the outline of a small coffin. I suspect that no other museum in the state really wants it either. The original site of Roger Williams' grave is now part of the Roger Williams National Monument. It is not the smallest national monument in the country, but is certainly in contention, and it is only a few blocks from my house. The monument consists of one city block in downtown Providence, the location of the first houses in the settlement founded by Williams, and indeed Williams' own house. A small, tasteful monument and plaque have been erected in the park marking the site of what may have been William's grave, a memorial that would likely have been much more to William's liking than the simultaneously garish and drab robo-Williams built on the top of College Hill in Terrace Park. For those who believe in such things, I'm told that both Terrace Park and the tree root are prone to giving people otherworldly sensations. It is said that the tree root was there to keep Williams in his grave, and that now he wanders. Certainly, having a giant brutalist DJ on top of my grave would make me a bit unquiet, but maybe that is just me. As for the tree root, it is felt to contain great malevolence, like one of the trees from the old forest. I leave it to you to determine for yourself if this bit of wood is a malevolent force, whether it looks like it grew over a body at all, or whether it was even ever in Roger Williams' grave. For myself, I am somewhat skeptical. I would be remiss if I closed for the day without mentioning two things. First, Providence is a very old town, and there are plenty of spooky sights for those so inclined. If you're in the area and are interested in learning more about the ghosts of Providence, Terrace Park is the starting location for the Providence Ghost Tour, a walking tour of haunted locations in the east side and downtown that is supposed to be a lot of fun. So you can check that out at ProvidenceGhostTour.com. Also located nearby is St. John's Episcopal Church, future site of the Center for Reconciliation. This museum, when it is opened, will help people explore the often-overlooked history of slavery in New England. For my money, a few tree roots are nowhere near as scary as the ability of people to rationalize cruelty to their fellow humans. Though not yet open at the time of writing, they will be soon, and they are already offering walking tours of the College Hill area for groups of five or more. As the leaves change and the fall comes on, it would be a great way to experience a side of Providence not often discussed, and the cathedral itself, which is a quite lovely building, is conveniently located near a number of historic sites, not the least of which being the National Monument, as I just mentioned. There's also a number of wonderful restaurants in the area, and a plethora of other things to see and do. I do hope you check it out if you're in town, and if they're not open quite yet, their contact information is available via their website, which is a long thing, so just Google the Center for Reconciliation. If you don't have five or more people in your party, I haven't been on the tour yet, and I would like to. So feel free to email me at wittenbergtowestphalia at gmail.com. You can also learn more about my podcast at wittenbergtowestphalia.weebly.com, uh, or you can check out the Facebook page, which is Wittenberg to Westphalia. Thanks very much, and thanks for listening.
And finally, we leave you with the history of China's Chris Stewart, who presents the ancient tale of the painted skin. The painted skin, by Pu Songlin, performed by Chris Stewart. At Taiyuan in Shandong, there once lived a scholar named Wang. Early one morning, he was out walking when he met a young lady carrying a bundle and hurrying along by herself. As she moved along with some difficulty, made all the more so by her bound feet, Wang quickened his pace and caught up with her, and found she was a pretty girl, perhaps only sixteen. Much smitten, he inquired where she was going so early, and with no one with her. I'm merely a traveler like you, replied the girl. You cannot ease my burdens, so why trouble yourself to ask? What distress is it? said Wang. I'm sure I'll do anything I can for you. She answered, My parents loved money, and they sold me as a concubine into a rich family. That wouldn't have been so bad, but the master's wife was very jealous and beat and abused me morning and night. It was more than I could stand, so I have run away. Wang asked again where she was going, to which she replied that a runaway had no fixed place to live. <laughs> well, my house is at no great distance, said Wang. What do you say to coming there? Joyfully, she agreed, and Wang, taking up her bundle for her, led the way to his house. Finding no one in the building to which he led her, the girl asked Wang where his family was, to which he replied that what she took for his house was in fact just the library. And a very nice place, too, she said. But if you are kind enough to wish to save my life, you mustn't let it be known that I'm here. Wang promised he would not divulge her secret, and having agreed to this, the scholar took her with him to bed. She remained there at Wang's house for several days without anyone knowing anything about it, after which he finally told his wife of the girl's presence and her woeful tale. But she, fearing the girl might belong to some influential family, advised him to send her away at once. This, however, he would not consent to do. Several days later, when going into town one morning, Wang met a Taoist priest, who upon meeting his gaze froze and looked him up and down in astonishment. Pulling Wang aside, the priest asked him in a hushed and fearful tone, My boy, just... Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What have you met in your travels? Well, I've met nothing, monk, replied Wong. The priest continued, Why, you've clearly been accursed. Even an old man like me, nearly blind, can see it clear as day. And yet, you tell me you've met nothing? <laughs> but Wang insisted that it was so. And the priest walked away, muttering under his breath, The fool! Some people don't seem to know when death is at hand. This pronouncement startled Wang, who at first thought of the girl. But then he reflected that a pretty young thing like her couldn't well be a witch and began to suspect that the priest was merely wanting to trick a gullible fool out of his coins. That evening, when he had returned at last to his home, he was surprised and a little annoyed to find the library door not only shut, but apparently bolted from the inside. Wang suspected that something must be wrong, and so he climbed over the gate wall, only to find the inner door shut against him as well. Determined to know just what was going on in his own house, Wang silently crept around to the side of the library and slowly peeked through the window. What he saw froze him in terror. Within his study, there hunched a hideous demon. Its shape was human-like, but that's where the similarity stopped and the horror began. Its face and body were the putrid green of a rotten corpse. Its fetid flesh sheened with a sticky wetness, and both of its unnaturally long arms ended in razor-like claws and from its hideous gaping jaw jutted scores of needle-sharp fangs in every direction. As Wong peered away, his own jaw now very much agape, he noticed that the creature was hunched over something and busily at work. Somehow, his horrified curiosity overcame the paralysis of terror, and he leaned closer into the window frame to see what this abomination labored over. To his further revulsion, the demon had spread what looked like a complete human skin upon the bed and was painting it up and down with a paintbrush dipped in white. Finished, the creature then threw aside the brush and gave the skin a shakeout just as one might an overcoat. Satisfied with its grisly work, the demon then threw the painted skin over its shoulders when, lo, it was the girl again, pristine, beautiful, and to all appearances, perfectly human. Stumbling away in terror at this revelation, Wong managed to get away from the locked library without arousing her, no, its, notice, and then broke into a frantic run down to the city in search of the priest he'd encountered earlier that day. Wong searched the darkened streets and shops before at last finding the old man in a nearby field. Panting in both exhaustion and terror, he threw himself on his knees and begged the priest to save him. After hearing the tale Wong sputtered out, the priest nodded gravely. It is even worse than I feared this morning. 
I'm afraid you've taken into your home a demon from the pit. Normally, such foul spirits are nothing but thought and vapor, without bodies of their own. But from time to time, certain of their number can take form and come into our own world by swapping places with some poor soul. As to driving her away, the creature must be in great distress to have sought such a mortal form, for as terrible as the thing is that you have described, that is the only time that they are truly vulnerable. However, I would not advise you seek to harm the creature, both because my vows forbid me in aiding in the injury of any living thing, however foul it might be, and also because it's far more likely that any such attempt would result in your demise rather than that creature's. Instead, your best bet would be to ward the demon off and force it to leave. I think I have something that might help. From his satchel, the priest then produced an amulet and gave it to Wong and bade him hang it at the door of his bedroom that night, and then to meet him again the following day at the nearby Qingdi temple. Still terrified, but at least somewhat assuaged by the priest's ward, Wong returned home, but did not dare enter the library. As quietly as he could, he made his way directly for his own living quarters, and hung the amulet upon the bedroom door before closing and bolting it firmly behind him. When his wife, Lady Chun, looked at him quizzically for such an out-of-character behavior, he began to explain his story of the priest's warning, but before long they heard the sounds of footsteps creeping outside. Wong once again found himself frozen in terror, and so his wife approached the door, unlatched it, and peered out. There, she saw the girl standing stock still and staring at the amulet on the door, with a look of pure dread on her face, and apparently either unwilling or unable to pass it. Her gaze briefly turned to the wife, who looked at her in a silent confusion. But the girl said nothing, only ground her teeth and walked away. Whatever relief her departure brought Wong, however, was short-lived. Shortly thereafter, the girl returned to the bedroom door, but this time she began loudly cursing in a voice that sounded almost inhuman, much less that of a young girl. You and your silly little priest won't frighten me. Do you think I'm going to give up what's already in my grasp? At once, she reached out and seized the priest's amulet and tore it to shreds before bursting through the door and into Wang's living quarters. The scholar's knees buckled in terror as the girl proceeded directly toward him. Before he could move or react, her hand shot out and straight into Wang's chest before pulling back out again with his bloody, still-beating heart in her clawed grip. Without so much as a look at Lady Chun as the woman cried out in terror and fear, she spun about and left the way she had came with her terrible cries. Aroused by the clamor, a servant burst into the room from his quarters and held aloft a lantern, illuminating the grisly scene. As Lady Chun screamed in terror from the floor, Wang lay motionless on the floor in a widening pool of his own blood and a gaping mess of a hole in his chest, and bits of blood splattered everywhere across the room. His wife, in an agony of fright and shock, spent the remainder of the night nearly immobile and silently weeping from the shock of what she'd witnessed. But the next morning, she was at least able to direct Wang's brother to see the priest that her late husband had told her about before his grisly fate. At the Qingdi temple, upon hearing the horror of the previous night, the old priest bitterly spat out, Foul demon, was it for this that I showed you compassion and mercy not a day before? 
Together with Wong's brother, the priest proceeded at once to the house. But upon arriving, they learned that a thorough search of the premises had concluded that the girl was nowhere to be found, and with no one having seen her leave or know of her destination. But the priest, raising his head and still sensing evil nearby, looked all around and said, mm, Luckily, she's still not far off. He then asked who lived in the houses on the south side of the compound, to which Wang's brother replied that they were his. Nodding, the priest declared that there is where the demon would be found. Wang's brother was, of course, horribly frightened, and said that he did not think that this was so. And then the priest asked him if any stranger had been to the house. To this he answered that he had been out at the Qingdi Temple, of course, and couldn't possibly say. But he went off to inquire, and in a little while came back and reported that an old woman had sought service with them as a housemaid, and had been engaged by his wife. That is the beast, said the priest, as Wang's brother added that she was still there, and so they all set out to go to the house together. Having arrived at the compound, the priest took out a wooden sword, endowed with Taoist carvings and blessings, and, standing in the middle of the courtyard, shouted aloud, Fiend of the Abyss! You have stolen my amulet! I demand its return! The elderly new housemaid, greatly alarmed, tried to get away through the back door, but was caught by the priest who approached her, wooden sword raised. The priest struck the woman with the flat of the blunt blade, and she fell down flat. As she did so, the human skin peeled back and away from her, exposing the hideous green monstrosity within. The creature lay there grunting like a pig, until the priest once again raised his wooden sword and cleaved it down, striking off her head and then holding it up for the whole household to see. The headless green body lay still only for a few moments, before, to the shock of the onlookers, yet another change began. The head and body both began to fulminate into a dense column of inky black smoke curling up from the ground with what appeared to be purpose and intent. All were shocked by this sight, all but the priest, who at once took out an uncorked bottle from his satchel and threw it right into the midst of the smoke. A sucking noise was heard, and the whole column was drawn into the bottle, after which the priest corked it up closely and put it back into his pouch. The skin, too, which was complete even to the eyebrows, eyes, hands, and feet, he also rolled up as though it were a scroll, and likewise placed it into the folds of his satchel. His task now complete, the priest made to leave when Wang's wife stopped him, with tears in her eyes, entreating him to bring her dead husband back to life. The priest said that he was unable to do that, but Wang's wife flung herself at his feet with loud lamentations and implored his assistance. For some time he remained immersed in thought, but at last he replied, My power is not equal to what you ask. I, myself, cannot raise the dead. But I will direct you to someone who may. And if you apply yourself to him properly, you will succeed. Wang's wife asked the priest who it was, to which he replied, There is a man in the city who many mistake for a madman, for he passes his time groveling in the dirt and shouting at all who will hear. Go now and prostrate yourself before him and beg him to help you. If he insults you, show no sign of anger. If he beats you, do not shed a tear and bear his ranting silently and with your ultimate goal in mind. Only this way will you be able to bring your husband back. Wang's brother knew the man to whom the priest alluded, 
and accordingly bade the priest adieu, and then proceeded at once with his sister-in-law in tow. Together they found the destitute beggar, raving away by the roadside, so filthy that it was all they could do to even go near him. From his nose a long string of snot dangled, to which he paid no mind, and his clothes were nothing but filthy rags. Nevertheless, Wang's wife approached him on her knees, at which the maniac leered at her and cried out, <laughs> Why, my beauty, what do I owe the pleasure? Perhaps it is that you have fallen in love with me? Wang's wife told him what she had come for, but he only laughed and said, <laughs> You can get plenty of other husbands. Why raise the dead one back to life? But Wang's wife again pleaded for his aid, and his demeanor markedly changed. He now shouted, I can't understand you people. Why do you always accost me with these pleas to raise your dead, raise your dead, as though I were the king of hell? As much out of anger as his own bemusement, the beggar then lashed out at Wang's wife with his walking stick and gave her a thorough thrashing, which she bore without a mummer and before a gradually increasing crowd of spectators. At last tiring of his violent game, the beggar started hacking up phlegm into his cupped hands until it was filled, and then held it to Lady Chun's face, saying, Eat it, then! But here she broke down and was quite unable to do so. However, she did manage the loathsome task at last. As it entered her throat, it felt like a compacted fuzz. It slid slowly down into her chest, and then clotted into a firm knot. At this, the maniac cried out in manic glee, <laughs> Why, my beauty, it is true! How oh, you must love me! Cackling all the while, the loathsome beggar arose and staggered away without taking any more notice of her. Both Lady Chun and her brother-in-law attempted to pursue the figure through the city din, and made it as far as the nearby temple, the whole time chanting loud supplications of thanks and appreciation. But by the time they had reached the gate, he had disappeared without a trace, and no matter how long and hard they searched, he had, to the best of their knowledge, vanished altogether. Succumbing at last to her disgust, rage, and shame, Wang's wife stormed home, where she mourned bitterly over her dead husband, grievously repenting the extreme steps she had taken, and now wishing nothing more than to join him in death. As the hours ticked by, though, she began to think of the pressing need to start preparing the corpse for its funeral. Owing to the grisly circumstance and dark magics surrounding his death, none of Wang's servants had dared venture near his still corpse. Thus it was left to Lady Chun alone to set to work, closing up the gaping hole in his chest and preparing him for burial. As she busied herself in this grim task, she was interrupted from time to time by her own sobs. Even this, however, was interrupted by a strange and frightening feeling, that of a rising solid lump in her throat. The solid mass pressed ever upward as though through its own volition, and at last, with a choking gag, popped free from her throat and fell straight into the dead man's gaping wound. Looking downward, she saw that it was in fact a human heart, and as soon as she had comprehended this, it began by its own accord to throb and pulse, emitting a warm, vapor-like smoke. Much excited, she at once closed the flesh over it and held the sides of the wounds together with all her might. Very soon, however, she got tired, and finding the gaseous vapors escaping from the crevices, she tore a piece of silk from her own brocade and bound it around the bloody flesh. 
She then began rubbing Wang's body all over and covering it with clothes in an attempt to revive his circulation, until at last she was thoroughly exhausted by the effort. Later that night, she removed the coverings and found that breath was coming from his nose. And by the next morning, her husband was awake and aware again, though disturbed in mind as if having awoken from a dream and feeling a strange pain in his chest. Where his heart had just days before been ripped from it, there was now a fleshy pink scar in his chest, about as big as a coin, which rapidly disappeared like smoke drifting through the wind. The Chronicler of the Strange Remarks How foolish men are to see nothing but beauty in what is clearly evil, and how benighted to dismiss as absurd what is clearly well-intended. It is folly such as this that obliges the Lady Chun to steal herself to eat another man's phlegm, when her husband has fallen prey to the basal urge of lust. Heaven's way has its inexorable justice, but some mortals remain foolish and never see its light. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia.